0: Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today we have Lewis. Lewis, hi, welcome.
1: Ah, guys. Thank you very much for having me here.
0: So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and
1: your research? Oh, yeah. This is like one of those questions that you get asked all the time. like conferences and stuff and I should by now after four years have a really short answer for you but I might waffle.
0: A long answer's better.
1: Fill fill the time please. I just finished my uh, PhD at University of Manchester. I work on modern British history particularly look at the early 1900s and 1920s I went to Manchester as an undergraduate and did my master's there and then also came back again for the PhD so I don't really know anything else I'm institutionalized I am a bit like Brooks on uh, Shawshank Redemption oh you too Georgia
0: yeah I'm fully institutionalized as well I did my undergrad here graduated 2013 came back from master's in 2017 haven't left
1: oh so you you just one year ahead of me then because I graduated in 2014
0: from undergrad oh nice I was in art history and visual studies though so ah, okay. I was over in the Mansfield Cooper building building looking at pictures while other people were reading books (laughs) i know it well and so yeah what sort of aspect of the early 1900s are you focused on
1: yes i'll give you the focus of the dissertation first and i'll tell you the significance of that to the early 20th century so I look at a collector of East Asian art who was born in the 1870s and he died in 1930, called John Hilditch, and he came from a working class background in Sandbach, which is near Crewe, and I apologise if I've pronounced Sandbach wrong, I only know it from watching them play football and reading it in my dissertation. Anyway, he moved to Manchester just at the end of the 19th century, he was a salesman for Singer who makes sewing machines, and he lived in Chalton, and... I used to actually walk past his house, which is kind of creepy. When I used to go to Morrison's, I used to kind of walk past his old house and it always used to kind of give me a little shudder. Is it? Knowing that, like, that's where he was.
0: Where is it in relation to the Morrison's?
1: So you're kind of walking down the tram tracks. Mm-hmm. It's called Warwick Road. So it's like just a kind of parallel, some of them roads that go past. But yeah, you're coming down the tram tracks like towards Morrison's. And on the right, there's like loads of roads. And one of them is Warwick Road. And he lived at 3 and 5 down that road. So that that used to creep me out a little bit. That's just do my shopping. (laughs) Anyway, he started collecting Japanese prints about like 1908 and buying and selling. And he managed to do quite well for himself. And then he switched to Chinese art and he started amassing quite a large collection but his goal seems to have always been to want to exhibit it at manchester art gallery he had some success and he had two exhibitions of japanese prints um, one at the art gallery and one at the whitworth quite short ones but then when manchester had an exhibition of chinese art in 1913 he wasn't invited he claimed that he had written to them asking can he be involved they said that like it was too late by the time they got back to him and this seemed to have ruffled his feathers a little bit. And from then on, he's extremely insecure and kind of battles with the art gallery from 1913 until his death. And he never yes. solves this kind of dispute. So I examine his war against the art gallery and how they kind of responded to him. And at some point in this discussion, the Manchester Art Gallery brought in the two foremost experts in Chinese art to come and look at his collection. So he managed to get like the two best like British experts to come to his house, which he called Mingland's. And he's an extremely eccentric bloke too. I need to also say that he, he created a garage in Victoria Park, Manchester in Rush Home where he conducted what he called was Buddhist Ceremonies but it was just kind of him banging drums and throwing rice on people. So he managed to get these kind of really serious two experts to his house to look at his collection, and they kind of rubbish it, and they say it's not anything there is, any, worth. But at the same time, he actually manages to exhibit his collection at some smaller galleries. So not only do I look at his tension with um, more elite collectors and the more elite specialists, places like Rochdale, Salford, Bagshaw Museum in Batley, these little museums, they're kind of happy because he's got loads of stuff, about about 2,500 things maybe a bit more. He always lied. He said he had 57,000 or 67,000, but this is just ludicrous. He didn't have that many. And he also said they were worth 250 grand, which is also crazy. And, but this is his way of trying to kind of compete and say that he should be with the elites. But yeah, these, the smaller guys were very, very pleased to kind of have him on board. So I, yeah, I look at his tensions with the experts and the galleries. And I guess the broader picture that I look at is how the democratization of bark collecting and culture in general upset some of the traditional social and cultural hierarchies and then how because he would never have had this opportunity to collect if there wasn't some cheap available antiques for him he couldn't buy from dealers like his more esteemed contemporaries mm. and then I look at the responses to him from the museum experts to see kind of how the elites restructured and responded to his challenge and then thus show how um, the hierarchies were rebuilt so yeah then a nutshell that's the kind of interesting story of Hilditch and I try and use him and tell a bigger picture about culture and society
0: yeah so this is a real sort of class story an insider outsider kind of story i guess in terms of uh, who can collect art and who decides what holds value and using those kind of established regimes of galleries and experts to enforce existing rules about who's in and who's out
1: yeah definitely
0: man that's absolutely fascinating stuff but how was he getting his hands on chinese art in the first place where was it i was gonna say where was it coming from presumably china
1: well we could say that but you know like fakes are made all over the place and he had some dodgy some dodgy stuff so yeah one of the biggest holes of my research has been to track down the objects where they came from mainly because there's so so bloody many of them Mm. where do you start and then the second thing is he told us where they came from but he was normally lying He said he went to China to collect them and he wrote 16 articles in the Evening Chronicle, kind of a weekly column that he had. And he would tell these exciting stories about being chased by bandits in China and coming across something or some Chinese princess gave him an object, which is, you know, there's no proof he ever left. I mean, there's no proof he ever left written. So this is also something that I had to kind of disentangle to try and find the provenance, which is tricky for people in museums anyway, but it's even harder when you've got a guy just layering on these stories. <laughs> for sure. The Japanese print was easier. I found him buying them in auctions. Um, I see his name listed quite often, and there's loads and loads of auctions from like 1909 to like 1912, like, like a bubble almost that's forming, and there's a real boom in collecting. So I can find him there, and that's really satisfying to see his name. But then with Chinese, I've looked in the dealer archive and he's not there so I kind of we can from that I can it's interesting that where he's not what circles he's not in he only bought one object from a dealer and it was kind of really cheap and he wasn't a a fixture in this ledger so we know that he wasn't able to compete and establish some good connections with the elite dealers at the time so I'm assuming that there was um well, where is he going to get them from? You could say he might have an agent who's doing it for him, and that's why I didn't find his name. But I think looking at the collection, he's buying in bulk, because he has quite a lot of things that are similar. And also, there's been some research done at Leeds on kind of where the antique shops were, and there's quite a lot clustered in the Northwest that he could have easily had access to. Mm. But, I mean, it's also likely that he could have had a contact in China. I know that he befriended some students in Manchester who were Chinese, and they could have helped him, or through Singer this network, but... Yeah, it's just one of those questions.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about the network available through Singer, who presumably were selling sewing machines kind of everywhere, even at that point.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure.
0: It's very interesting that he at once doesn't seem that interested in the quality of what he's buying, but is also upset to be told by an expert that it's not of particularly good quality you know, if he is buying in bulk and buying from, we'll say, sort of questionable sources and not buying from dealers and seeking things that are sort of vouched for, he seems, based on what you've said, to be much more interested in having a vast quantity of stuff than a few items of extreme quality. But then as soon as the sort of establishment tells him, oh, well, your stuff's not very good quality, (laughs) then it, it creates a sort of tension. It's like he was more interested in what the collection said about him and his adventures or the adventures he could claim he had than what the art world thought was valuable
1: yeah so there's quite a lot of research on how, how when you collect you collect yourself mm. it's interesting you bring up this idea of quantity and also quality because these are constantly in friction with each other and using Bourdieu, i look at is hilditch getting class wronged as, a, as an alan partridgeism i used to read how hilditch so for instance when he says they're worth 250 grand this is in 1924 the art gallery do a second exhibition where they don't invite him again and he's absolutely wounded by this and he writes them privately trying to be polite about it and he kind of follows the kind of social codes and etiquette and then he gets no response and they don't reply to him and then he goes to the press in in 1925 in march and he writes this big letter saying my collection is is the largest in the world it's worth 250 grand but he also he says some stuff about quality too and then he says i want to give it to manchester and i want to give it to the museum but if the art gallery aren't going like, to give me a special exhibition and kind of be nice to me, they're not, they're not going to have it. So he's trying to kind of blackmail them with this Victorian code of like, requesting culture, requesting your collection, which is seen as really polite and a good thing to do. He uses that for his, his own means. I look at the way he, by talking about quantity and price, he kind of exposes that he's, he's not understood that art is... Muddy in art with money is dirty. Yeah. And also with quantity, it should be about the quality. So, like, you're right, yeah.
0: Yeah, kind of exposing himself as a non-connoisseur in a space where the rules are made by connoisseurs. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting microcosm of a conflict in that now, 2020, this guy's collection is completely fascinating for completely different reasons and has a huge amount of value and an exhibition of his collection would probably be really exciting and something that the whitworth or the art gallery would absolutely consider because it has something to say about the history of the city about the history of the city's relationship with china which is obviously kind of a hot topic and about this eccentric individual so now the sort of the same kind of elites who are rejecting him then want would want it now arguably but the meanings of the collection have changed man, that's so interesting.
1: And and funnily enough, as soon as those galleries would let the collection into their galleries, then the value goes up, the economic value goes up instantly. Yeah. So, yeah, it it really is fascinating. But at the same time, I I don't want to do... um, I'm careful with, I show that in like the eyes of the elites, they're kind of distressed by his descriptions of his collection. Mm. But at the same time, I kind of back away from this idea that he's completely getting it wrong. I want to also maybe suggest that he's creating his own hierarchy where money and quantity are grey and so is quality. So it's like the low cultural values that you might expect and he meshes them with high cultural values and in terms of this hierarchy, he's at the top. So yeah, it's... uh, it's interesting because I found out that this 250000 that he put, I wonder why did he choose that number? And that was the exact amount that was estimated it would cost to renovate a new gallery for the art gallery, Manchester Art Gallery. And they've been campaigning for years for that and they, they couldn't pass it because it was going to be too expensive and the ratepayers weren't happy with the price. Mm. So I feel like it was kind of like a winking kind of an insider gag, maybe trying to antagonize them. The newspapers didn't actually buy and make the connection that 250 grand was what they needed, but I did feel like that was kind of the subtext that he was being cheeky in a way.
0: Yeah, before I was a researcher again. My background was in fundraising. I didn't do big money philanthropy, but I worked with people who did big money philanthropy you know getting so and so to make a donation in exchange for naming rights or you know things like that i I think that's why some of these connections stand out to me it's this idea of my collection is worth a quarter of a million and that's what you need if you were just nice to me i could solve every problem you have but yeah you you won't be nice to me so i won't you're right like there is real shades of alan partridge
1: I mean, I should also add is after the first time he was rejected in 1913, he dressed three friends up who were white Englishmen. He dressed them in Chinese robes from his collection and apparently kind of put makeup on their faces and wandered them into the gallery. And they would speak in gibberish and he would translate it. And he said that his friends were like uh, experts, but actually, interestingly, he said like one was like a lawyer and one was like a medic. He didn't even choose like art experts, which is quite funny. They would speak in gibberish and he would translate it as this exhibition is really missing my collection. That's what the experts are saying. So this happened that they, they did go to the gallery and they also went to the fire station and they also went to Manchester Museum. And there's even like some of the local newspapers have a picture of them outside the gallery. And the newspapers seem to have been duped in in, uh, 1913, this was. But then Hilditch doesn't reveal the trick until 1923 and he's like, 10 years ago, I performed the greatest hoax ever, and it's like, big news in Manchester, and he says that the art gallery believed the trick, and to to the extent where they actually bowed their heads to these um, what do you call them, like, distinguished mandarins, something like this, and the next day, the art gallery officials are just like, this never happened, we knew all along that they weren't, and this case where I'm trying to unravel if this hoax actually ever happened, like, were they tricked, we'll never know, it seems like, from a few different accounts, and after his death, one official conceded that they were allowed into the gallery, but they never bowed their heads, basically. These officials never bowed their heads. That's a sticking point. But Hilditch did this, and you can see how this would annoy them. And then he wants that he expects them just to let him exhibit his stuff. So, yeah, it's not just a case of they're being kind of snobbish about him. He's also really antagonising them.
0: Yeah, kind of thwarting his own ambitions by not being able to resist.
1: And then when people suggest that this might be a reason why they might not want his collection, he plays the card that officials should be kind of objective and not let a personal conflict get in the way and that they should be representing the people. So he's quite canny in latching onto to kind of the, the language of democracy at the time to try and put forward his position. And, you know, he gets them to bring the experts to his house.
0: It's really interesting who gets to be an expert, and what does it mean to be an expert... What, what do you need to be an expert in Chinese art in this period, especially considering that standards for Chinese art in China and in Europe are quite different and the communication isn't always perfect? Yeah. Something that makes that especially interesting is the idea that the fake experts that he created, their expertise comes from being perceived as Chinese. The art experts, the British art experts on Chinese art can come to his house and say it's not a good collection, but they don't have the level of expertise that he would accept as being from someone who was Chinese. Like that there's a different way of knowing that's sort of in contest, even if he used fake Chinese people.
1: He claimed that he was educated at a university in China. So he really buys into this idea that having access to the Chinese methods of connoisseurship, which are different at this time from in the West, he taps into that to suggest that his authority and expertise is superior to those of the British ones. Because interestingly, he also claims to have gone to a public school like those in Britain at the the V&A and at the British Museum. And so he's kind of saying, like, I've got what you've got, and I've also got a little bit more because I also have the Chinese side. Which is interesting if you think about it in terms of debates over Orientalism, in that he understands that you have to kind of accept... The, the the west and the white west are not completely all experts on on foreign cultures particularly those that we don't understand the language or the or the other histories of but then he goes about faking these he doesn't let anyone chinese actually have a voice in this he strips them of their agency and maps it onto himself so he's like i don't know how to how you might explain that but he, he you feel like he's going in the right direction and then completely undermines it and it's like okay actually this is in some ways worse a worse type of orientalism than what you could have how you could have gone i mean i have one example where his exhibition at salford coincided with a japanese um like curator who was um or it was like an archaeologist visited europe to look at museums and see how european museums were kind of what their programs of education were it coincided with hilditch's exhibition and then there's an article in the press that is supposedly written by this japanese guy and it's just very obviously not. It's just very obviously written by Hilditch. <laughs> all the same tropes of his other writing are in there. And I found the Japanese guy's report and got it translated from Japanese. It was mainly about Salford were really good at, for education and they let some kids touch the objects. Nothing about Hilditch collection, but Hilditch makes it a little Um So yeah, it completely appropriates them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a sort of in the same vein as writing those sort of adventure stories about how he came by the artefacts that he had. It's a sort of like using that those sort of Orientalist ideas of being exotic and having access to modes of knowledge that aren't available to the West. And yeah, taking those all for his own personal mythology in the service of, I guess, a sort of class mobility issue... (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely We you think about the relationship between class and culture and high culture and how this might be an escape for him. Mm. I mean, Anna says, like, it's interesting who gets to be an expert and I think in Hilditch's eyes there's only one and it's him. And that's the end of the story. But it's interesting that there are instances where it seems like there is some trust in him, particularly because there's distrust in the British Museum and the V&A experts. More popular audiences that don't have the expertise or the cultural capital find some of Hilditch's arguments persuasive or at least maybe not directly duped by him, but see that it might be useful to kind of go along with it. So the, the museums in Salford and Rochdale, for instance, it's hard to say if they were duped by him, if they believed it was worth 250 grand, or if they just needed to put on an exhibition and he had loads of stuff. So he kind of just went along with it. But that created trouble for the, for the guys at the British Museum and the v and a because then Hilditch could say, well, these museums are having it, why aren't you? So in terms of expertise, it was patchy in Britain at the time. It's definitely patchy and I would never say that I've got more authority on Chinese art than Hilditch. I don't look at the objects and make a judgement on their authenticity. I look at how he described them and, and how the experts described them because ultimately Hilditch was self-taught and it's, it's kind of commendable that how much of his time and efforts he poured into this and I can't compete
0: yeah and as a person from like a very particular social background at a particular time you can't exactly judge him for wanting something different you know for wanting to translate his success as a salesman into social mobility and into acceptance into particular circles where you know he felt he had as much right to be there as other people i think it's a yeah it's interesting to hear what kind of strategies he kind tried to employ to to get that access
1: oh there's so many the tip of the iceberg honestly there's so many things i couldn't put into the station where it's just like this guy is just relentless like he does not stop i think i think i've bored so many people with with this conversation so i won't go into too many
0: I actually think that's probably quite a good way for us to segue you've already told us quite a lot of sort of really funny things about this guy but we do ask our guests if they will share a funny anecdote or something from their research that we think our audience would enjoy so do you have something like that
1: i don't know if it's particularly funny but one of my favorite parts of doing the research was getting in contact with i managed to get in touch with some of hilditch's family members which is fantastic oh wow well it is is, His brother, who became quite a successful musician, his side of the family. Hilditch had no children. He married, but he didn't have any children. But um, Hilditch's brother did, and I I got in touch with, with, I guess it's his great-grandson, the the brother's great-grandson, and also a great-great-granddaughter, perhaps? I think that might be right. Maybe I'm missing out a generation. So that was really neat. But then, um, in terms of funny, it also meant getting in contact with... I mean, this family history leads you down so many rabbit holes, and I got in touch with a gentleman who lived in the house of hilditch's brother and he had some stuff in the attic about hilditch and he helped me out by sending those over to me which were really useful to try and get a handle on the family like why did edwin get really rich and really successful and john John Hilditch struggle, and then as a result, this um, the gentleman who helped me with um, with the research asked me to because he knew I was a historian. He asked me if I could help him in like a land dispute with, with like the council or something like this. So I ended up doing some research on like deeds and the roads for him. I don't I have no idea if it was useful or not, but those were quite enjoyable days for me. Like where it felt like a bit of history in practice, you know, actually getting my hands dirty someone so that was really cool
0: that's so interesting because one of the things with history is that we have very low impact so that's really exciting to to hear about something more more practical
1: i can give you an impact as well in terms of family history but it's a bit more somber is that when i was getting in touch with the family members of edwin hilditch's brother edwin's son had had a really fraught relationship with his father and had no idea about his father's upbringing as like a working class he always thought it was this kind of typical edwardian i think he described him like plums in his mouth very strict disciplinarian who he didn't get on with and then this gentleman was called david sims hilditch who i got in touch with and unfortunately passed away during my research but before then i managed to get in touch and he asked me loads of questions about what i would found out about his, his old man and yeah and he said like this had made him so happy and that was really really heartwarming to have been part of that and that was the point where i felt like yeah like that's an impact on one individual's life not as funny as a story as uh digging into deeds, but it was yeah really really moved me actually to to do that
0: yeah that's that's really lovely, and it just feels it endows our skills with meaning, i think that's very lovely, thank you
1: no it's a pleasure
0: so. I think I'd just like to say thank you so much for being our guest today, Lois. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear about your research. Sorry if I dominated the conversation a bit. I love stuff like this, especially the sort of angle with who gets to know things about culture. It's just a really interesting question. So thank you so much for giving up your time to to speak to us today.
1: Yeah, thank thank you so much for having me. I mean, I also feel like I might have dominated, but maybe that's because we've been in lockdown for so long and no one's really done much speaking that we're all just trying to to grab it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just have a conversation while we possibly can. Yeah. Anna, thank you so much for hosting. Thank you very much, Georgia. And as always to our listeners, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not safe for publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFPPodcast, or you can email us at NSFPPodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.